My hope comes from the fact that I have breath in my lungs and I happen to believe that little old me can do my tiny part in moving the needle towards a more just and equitable society by voting, by speaking up when I experience racist behavior or injustice someplace. I have a voice, I can say something. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of COVID. Life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience. Well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. And with every interview, we are enriched. It's truly helping. I'm Mary Claire, and wow, just wow, here we are, waking every morning to curveball after curveball, politics, justice, education, economy, and all the while the persistence of COVID and climate breakdown. It's confusing, sometimes frightening, and we're weary, worn down, even tender. Part of the broader work of how it looks from here is to support the practice of full ecology. Full ecology combines perspectives of the biological and social sciences to take a full look at where, as a species, we humans really are, beginning with the unshakable fact that we are nature in nature. Full ecology uncovers options we have for rebuilding our relationship with the natural world. Here, in the time of COVID, those curveballs I mentioned are symptoms of unhealthy social ecologies. Social ecologies are composed of the ways we are with each other, say, in love, or in friendship, or in communities. And then there's the way you are with yourself. That's another social ecology. And what each of us brings to the fullness of ecology as a whole Well, it's different, and every bit of what we bring can contribute to our shared health or to our steady self-destruction. In today's interview with Paris Mullen, you can listen for the description of how social ecologies are working and where they need to heal. Listen for what we can do to make a good difference. Paris is a health communications professional in Chicago. In fact, he's given his adult life to supporting the health of social ecologies. An HIV activist, Paris currently works as a consultant in the pharmaceutical industry, where he supports case managers and other allied health professionals who work directly with individuals and communities living with HIV. Paris is also the founder and CEO of the nonprofit Hope for Us, an organization dedicated to developing hope and self-worth for individuals experiencing the psychological, social, and spiritual challenges of living with trauma. My conversation with Paris was so rich, it turned into a two-part episode. We're calling part one, Freedom or Death, which is a quote from Harriet Tubman. This week, Paris speaks to the intersections of COVID-19 with Black Lives Matter demonstrations and with the history of HIV. His clarity and precision invite us all 
into deeper consideration of the circumstances of our days. Let's get to the interview. This morning, Paris Mullen is in Chicago, and I'm in Montana. Hi, Paris. Hello, Mary. How are you? Great to see you. Great to hear you. <laughs> it's good to see you, <laughs> you here on Zoom. I know. And since this podcast is called How It Looks From Here, it occurred yeah. to me to ask you over there in Chicago, what do you see right now out your window? You know, I am fortunate to be able to see Lake Michigan um, in my apartment here, high rise in Chicago on on uh, Lakeshore Drive, and I see beautiful uh, Chicago and Lake Michigan, um, and the water is still, the air, the sky is partly cloudy, but uh, mostly blue. It's a beautiful day um, coming on the tails of protests that have happened because of Breonna Taylor and the yes. verdict in that case, and so kind of an ironic scene that I'm looking at now, given the various protests, whether it be for George Floyd and the racial inequity in our justice system, whether it be for, well, Breonna Taylor for the same reason. So the nights get loud here. Um, helicopters, police cars, again, people in the streets um, chanting and standing for social justice and civil equities. But right now it's beautiful and we'll see what tonight looks like. Yes, right. So within the last mm, 20 hours at most, yeah. you've looked out the window at a very different scene. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, Lakeshore Drive's there. That's a major artery, if you will, for traffic. And, you know, quite often there's ambulance, there's fire trucks, there's a number of police cars, and then, you know, law enforcement of horses as well as bicycles. You know, and you just see mm -hmm. the various, you know, police vehicles parked on various side streets, you know, mm -hmm. prepare to take action if necessary on the main uh, Michigan Avenue. That's a few blocks away from me and where some businesses are boarded up. But certainly we have, you know, police vehicles that are really parked on every block going up and down Lakeshore Drive. You know, we know from historians that it's pretty much guaranteed that when pandemics roll through, some kind of public demonstration emerges. And that's correlational, but if in fact that is so, and it seems like historians are saying that it is, this is what we got this time round. How is it for you to see that coming together of the pandemic and the social justice, how is it for you? Paris? It certainly is a wake-up. That's a very complex question and um, that you ask. How is it for me? It is multifaceted. It is nuanced. You know, if you're talking specifically about this, the social justice or the social injustice, the racial inequity, the systemic racism that has manifested um, specifically through our justice system as it retains to George Floyd and now Breonna Taylor, um, in conjunction with the impact of COVID-19 um, on everyone, but particularly those marginalized communities who are as well impacted by systemic inequities 
and systemic racism, it all hurts. So specifically, the inequities, if we're talking about COVID-19, the inequities that allow for black and brown communities to be disproportionately impacted by this pandemic with regard to unemployment, not having health insurance, um, with regard to many black and brown communities are located on frontline jobs, you know, healthcare and personal care services, hospitality, entertainment industries, which we know these industries were first and foremost hit by the pandemic. The recession that the pandemic is causing, which disproportionately impacts, you know, black communities with regard to businesses, black businesses in particular. So there we're looking again at income. We look at eviction being at a higher rate for black and brown communities when there's already financial instability and joblessness, unemployment and underemployment, having savings and just generally wealth to be able to sustain one through a pandemic such as this. Many of us don't have that anyway, but if we look at marginalized communities, you know, they are more vulnerable with regard to having liquid savings or assets to carry them through this very hard time in the in the event that, well, the reality that many are losing their jobs. So you see that this is the impact of systemic inequities, and it's a trickling down effect or a domino effect, actually, that just impacts every aspect of these communities, um, which leave them just that much more vulnerable to a pandemic such as we're talking about. So, yeah, not to mention, you know, if we're talking about finding a vaccine for COVID-19, we cannot address that without being honest about medical mistrust in black and brown communities. And we're wanting to be in vaccine research for, for COVID-19. But again, we have medical mistrust because of historical and unethical treatments that have happened in, in our community. So it's, a, it's an icky reality. And I guess lastly, with regard to COVID-19, what we do know is that a lot of testing locations are not strategically placed in these communities of color around the country. And so there's another issue as well. And I think that speaks to inequity as well. So for those reasons with regard to COVID-19, it hurts. Um, you know, and then, you know, so folks are dying at the hand of this virus. Folks are dying at the hand of systemic racism as we, if, you know, from the perspective of, of the injustices that we're seeing within our legal system, um, police brutality, uh, disproportionate arrests, um, killings, arrests should not equate to murders, you know, and, you know, the list goes on. So it hurts. It hurts. Um, but I'm not hopeless. Um, so I'll stop. I'll stop there. Well, let's speak about that. You know, like, like we say early in the description of this podcast, nobody sees the world the same way. It's really quite helpful to hear what the world looks like and that's what you're saying from you. But when you say you're hopeful, how? What does that look like? Describe that. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe I should back up on that. Uh, <laughs> maybe I should back up on that. Because <laughs> I don't think I have anything figured out <laughs> with regards right. to what hope looks like. Though I have the company Hope for Us. I believe in the concept of hope. I believe that hope will prevail in times like these as they have in the past. So I'll get to answer your question. One last thing I'll just say, when I was talking about COVID-19, I was referring to social determinants of health. And, uh, you know, I work in the healthcare industry. I'm getting my master's of uh, science and health communication at Northwestern now. What we know about um, health is that 
Only 20% of health is associated with health care and 50% plus of health is more is associated with social determinants. So that bear on the health of an individual, more of that is correlated or associated with the social determinants of health uh, versus the healthcare system, if you will, in and of itself. So um, hope. Um, yeah, what does hope look like when you see it? What does hope look like? I mean, just free associate. I'll what? tell you, I'll tell you. Oh, what it, hope looks like freedom either realize or materialize now in a tangible way now and or hope looks like that freedom that I may not be able to access now, but I see it. I have a vision for it. I have faith for it in the future, which keeps me striving for a better world. So it, I don't necessarily have to be able to have it manifested tangibly in policy. But uh, if I see some path toward it in the future, that gives me hope that we can get there. And I think that's probably where more of my hope comes from is, you know, what the pandemic and what the racial and social unrest have done for me, it's even more so ripped the rose colored glasses off, the disillusionment about where we are as a people, as a world. And I'm glad truth, the truth has set me free. It is, you know, caused me to even be more woke, as we say, about what's really going on, the inequities, the gaps, the marginalizations. My hope comes from the fact that I have breath in my lungs and I happen to believe that little old me can do my tiny part in moving the needle towards a more just and equitable society by voting, by speaking up when I experience racist behavior or injustice someplace. I have a voice. I can say something. There may be consequences, but I can say something and hopefully I can collaborate with those that believe like me and our collective voice can make policy change, can change opinions, can help reveal truth about the reality of racism. It's not over because we've had a, a have had a black president. That's not true. So I guess I have hope in the abilities and the strength and the intellect and the wherewithal that God has given me to do my little part in dismantling uh, systemic inequity. This is Mary Claire. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. There's a measure of freedom that it seems like one must feel to confront racism. There's a measure of belief that inheres in that behavior. Am I right on that? Because you speak also of freedom that these behaviors can lead toward in a future. Right. So that's a goal. But right in the moment, it seems like you must experience 
and perhaps all of us do, some measure of freedom to be able to stand and say no to injustice. Yeah, you know, and I'll say, I think a person is most free when they give themselves that freedom. And then they demand that that kind of internal freedom be reflected uh, in society through policy. But, you know, I just actually had seen Harriet, the movie about Harriet Tubman. And her mantra was freedom or death. There was no in between. Either I'm going to be free or I'm going to be dead. And I love that. It just simplified, though it's not a simple process or living that she talked about, and obviously that we know. But there is no other option. It's freedom or I'm out of here. And I feel it the same way. There isn't middle ground or debate on, is there such thing as white privilege? Is there such thing as systemic racism? Is there such thing as social determinants of health? And the list goes on and on and on and on. Yes, there is. And I demand justice and freedom around those things. The alternative is, or I die in that system. And I refuse to die in that system. So I'm going towards freedom. But I've given my own self the right to believe that I deserve to be treated as a human and therefore to access freedom. Uh, in this case, we look at, you know, with regard to the legal system, to be treated justly. I believe that that's my right, so I fight for it. Healthcare access with regard to marginalized people and myself. I believe it's our right, so I fight for it. We look at healthcare reform, and that's a big conversation right now with the ACA. And, you know, just recently I was listening about pre-existing conditions. Folks are living with COVID. There's a new term, long haulers, which now we are becoming more aware of as more people are living with COVID after having had it. The longer-term effects of it, which fall into the category of pre-existing conditions. So what about these folks who are seeking coverage? I believe they deserve it and should be afforded coverage, healthcare, even coming in with pre-existing condition. Another form of giving my freedom, protect my health as well. And I just don't believe that there is any other option. So I don't know, it's freedom or death, and I'm going to keep marching toward freedom because I, death isn't an option. You have been in the center of the fight to support people who live with HIV. And as uh, Dr. Fauci said not too long ago, we really don't know enough about the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, right. to know whether it's more like chickenpox or herpes or the flu or HIV. So my question is from your perspective, what do you see maybe not as the uh, comparisons between the two, well, the comparisons and the confluence, what are you seeing there? Oh, sure. So then we look at the same systemic inequities if we look at from the healthcare place, you know, access, places to get tested, you know, for both HIV and coronavirus. So, and particularly I'm referencing the impact in black and brown communities. Now one is able to have greater access to getting HIV testing in black and brown communities across the country, particularly in the deep South, where there's a, the highest concentration of HIV 
uh, epidemic in the U.S., but that had not been the case for so long. Um, addressing, you know, stigma within the healthcare system uh, with regard to people who are living with HIV. So some of the same inequities that were addressed or have been raised in the fight against HIV are the same things that bear on COVID-19. And here we are again, where the same black and brown communities are disproportionately impacted by this pandemic, just as we have been impacted by the HIV pandemic. You know, so the, you know, because we're in the same system, there's gonna be some of the same barriers. You are in a master's program for health communication at Northwestern, correct? Correct. And so as you speak, I'm thinking that the communication, of course, is with people who are living with these circumstances, but you are working directly with people who provide services to these folks. And then there's the whole policy level discussion. Right. How do we have an impact on public policy and not just the language of policy, the practice of policy? You know, I would say we need, if we're going back to the, the conversation around freedom, we need voices and, and people who will not only represent marginalized populations, but who are from these marginalized populations to get into places of power and decision making to help inform policy. And uh, I don't want to say to oversimplify, but most simply getting involved in the political process by voting, running for office, allowing our voices to be heard at all levels within the government so we can inform the policies that impact our day-to-day -day life as it pertains to health care. The, the white horse isn't coming to save us. It's just not. There is no white horse coming to save us. We have got to save ourselves by putting ourselves in positions of influence, places of power politically, you know, and also influencing those who are supposed to be representing us. And you, like all of us, are standing on the shoulders of giants. Yes. And some are alive and some are ancestral. Correct. Speak of a few of those folks. Oh, I always have to start with my parents and my grandparents who gave me a foundation of faith. My parents are ministers, my mom and dad, my grandparents, my grandmothers. Um, one is passed on. She, Rose Mullen, an evangelist, and my grandmother, Bishop Dorothy Blaylark Hill, is a pastor in Minneapolis. But they really gave me a foundation of faith. And I think that's where the fight comes from and the, the perspective on freedom and hope, knowing that it's something beyond what I can see or touch. You know, faith is calling those things that are not as though they were. Having uh, a connection to that unseen world, believing that that which is unseen, it will eventually be manifest in the seen world in a tangible way. Whether I'm here to see it or, or, or not, I believe it is coming. So there's more than what meets the eye with regard to all that's happening. And that there are powers greater than me at work um, for our good. So I believe in God. I believe in a power greater than myself. Oh boy, outside of that, <laughs> I know that, that that's you know, a large part there. We of course have, you know, with regard to the field of HIV, Cornelius Baker, uh, who's based in Washington, DC, what an advocate and a leader in the fight to end the epidemic, 
who he is as an individual, as a gay black man, has helped inform who I am as a gay black man. You know, myself also with regard to living with HIV. We have Wakefield. Some may not know, but those were giants for me um, as I began to get in this fight with regard to HIV. And of course, we have the John Lewis's of the world who passed recently. Of course, we have the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Ida B. Wells of the world. Uh, of course, we have the James Baldwin's of the world, the Marsha P. Johnson's of the world, transgender woman who helps, you know, really start our first uh, riots with regard to, you know, justice for LGBTQ plus communities, Stonewall. So there are many shoulders that I stand on, many shoulders that I stand on. Hmm. Now that you have a few names to Google, we'll take a pause and pick up the second half of my conversation with Paris Mullen next time. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe and Doug LaVisca. Music by Cedar mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. You can find us on social media and at www.fullecology.com. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners like you.